I'm Dwayne Schultes, and on this Vital Health Podcast from ESMO, I'm speaking to Bettina Rill. Bettina is a force to be reckoned with as the founder of the Melanoma Patient Network Europe and is regarded as one of the world's leading patient advocates. Bettina, always a pleasure, dear. How are you doing? Likewise. Thanks for having me here. You know, I came in on Monday, and I was going to try and track you down, and you were in <laughs> like five, six sessions. You were on stage. You owned the joint. Yeah, you're exaggerating. Uh, but uh, it was definitely a number of meetings. And, you know, ESMO is now the opportunity to to meet the community and to, to discuss, to align. Um, I think we, after COVID, we all appreciate how good it is to get back together in person and really um, work work through things. It's just like, I think I only appreciate now how much we, we get done when we meet for real. 30,000 people here? Yes, even above. It does feel good. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's crazy. <laughs> Honestly, I've been to ESMO five years ago and it was half of this. It was nothing like this. I know. You have to think positively. You know, you get your 10,000 steps with a ticket. So, you know, <laughs> it's just like the health aspect of it all. Aside from the monsoon last night in Madrid, it, was, it absolutely poured. One of the worst storms they've had in five years. Yes, I've heard so. That was quite impressive. Not what you would expect from Madrid, but, you know. Most patient advocates don't have a medical background, but you have a PhD in biomedical sciences from UCL, University College London. How does the fact that you are a bench scientist, someone who's done real research and even been a practitioner practicing surgery for a while, how does that aid you in working with patients? That gives you a skill set that I don't normally see. So, well, I did surgery during my student years, so I, I used every opportunity, but I never was a practicing surgeon. So I, I just, uh, I finished med- medical school and then went into research. But um, I realized that when my husband was then diagnosed with melanoma in, uh, in 2011 and it was stage four immediately, I realized how much anything I had basically done up to then um, made a difference in what we could do. So I had the medical background, I had a PhD in biomedical science, which was a lot of molecular biology, so I was familiar with gene networks, pathways, I was working at university, so I could access scientific publications. and. Um, I had also lived between different countries, so I could navigate systems not just in one country but in different countries, and it made all the difference how we could handle the situation, and what already back then struck me was the injustice of it all. So it started, that was kind of my personal motivation, but of course if you have an understanding of systems and you have access to the information, because often it starts with access to information and the knowledge to it, that makes all the difference how you can then proceed. And of course, it gives it gives an advantage. Having said that, you know, it is like I mean, there are different areas of expertise. If it came there, for example, cancer also has legal implications, sure. and there, of course, I would be the absolutely wrong person to ask. So, I think cancer affects many areas of life, and uh, you have to have someone who has deep expertise, deep technical expertise in the areas. And I have certain, but not all of them, of course. But it's a skill set that is unique, and I think even you're aware of that, obviously, and it's part of the reason why you're so impactful. You alluded to the fact that your your husband had, had died from melanoma. When did that occur, and why did you decide to fully jump ship then and say, oh, "I'm going to dedicate myself to patient advocacy"? That's a really hard question, actually. So it was um, he died, and so he was diagnosed in 2011 when the first checkpoint inhibitor was uh, actually approved in the U.S. and then later came to Europe, and he died in 2012. So it was the time when these new promising drugs started filling full auditoriums, made the sure. plenary session at conferences like these, and um, it was all about access to clinical trials. And um, at the time, I didn't see myself as advocate, you know, where you go, like everyone, you go on the internet, you Google, and then you try to find people who are in your situations, because I think that was when the first obs- observation, you fall out of your life, and 
no one around you is like you and no one can understand what you're going through. So you've tried to find people who have been there because you think, yeah, I'm, I'm going crazy. And you kind of want to want to validate your own experience. So we found ourselves in a US patient forum, actually, where there were people also on stage four and you realized that was totally normal, but they lived in very different places. And um, the forum was pretty good. It was just, there was already discussion about what's ongoing, but I could see that people, for example, didn't understand the science. And it was just, I, I was reading it anyway. You right. know, everyone was contributing what they found, what they saw. And I saw, you know, I thought this is my expertise. I do this anyway. And it felt like so little to do if everyone chips in and says, I read this, I found this, I've heard this. Then this was my contribution. This is what I did. So I started explaining science and, you know, what, like, what clinical trials are, how we approve drugs, uh, how pathways work, what a BRF mutation is, what it means. So this is how I kind of slipped gradually into it. Um, and then after Peter had died, everyone, you know, your surrounding goes very much on, you know, you have to get over it and return to life and all that kind of stuff, which never works. But, yeah, you know, most people then after say you just give up, you pretend everything is back to normal, which of course it isn't. But um, I tried that, actually. Um, so Peter was like, was... Um, he had been super supportive like of me going into science and I know that he would hate uh, would have hated the thought that I would just leave all of it because I worked so hard for it that I would leave all of that behind to do something that's so linked to his disease and his death I don't think I even know think I don't think he would appreciate it so um, I tried that I tried to leave it all behind I took the kids I went on holiday three weeks first week was fantastic you know no cancer no death no nothing it was great second week already dawned on me that I was kind of you know probably not quite honest with myself in the third week I realized I was just fooling myself you can't pretend something like this didn't happen and I will never forget that I was on the like it was on an island one of the German islands and on the very back I got a text and it was someone who was stuck with something they couldn't understand couldn't explain and it was a question that took me like two seconds to answer and I know exactly that it was on that boat that I decided that I would continue with that so I'm not doing it for him I'm not doing it as you know I really stopped in between and that it's a con conscious decision it just felt wrong that if I had something that was for me so easily accessible not to use it if it would make such a difference to other people and cost me so it so, so came at so little effort to me it just didn't seem right so that was the point when I decided I would continue um, so you know this is like it, but you still move into it gradually and I think most of my colleagues would say the same you don't you know you're not born an advocate you kind of have something that upsets you, something you want to change, and then you gradually move into it, and then you see that you can change things, and that reinforces that, that you think it is possible to change something, and then you do more of it, and then it becomes kind of, you know, you, you one day someone calls you a patient advocate, I never referred to myself <laughs> as one, and then you go, did they mean me? Is that me? me? Were they talking to someone else? Yeah, precisely, <laughs> and I say, okay, you know, and then you start self-referring to it afterwards. But I'll take one issue with something you said, I mean, the fact that you say you're not using your science, I disagree with that. You're actually applying your science in a yes. very practical and important way where there's a big gap. You don't have those knowledge areas, those expertise often with people in your role. It's normally people suffering from That's the true. disease or, you know, people have not done biomedical research at a very high level like you have. So I do think in many ways you are fulfilling Peter's wishes and you are following your science background, just in a different application. Yeah, but I mean, I was at the time I was making uh, glowing zebrafish. I was in fundamental research and sure. I loved it. And I was in a fantastic group. It was half paleontologists and half molecular biologists. And I had a fantastic time. I had a great boss. It was like, so I learned so much, but it was, you know, is research for the sake of research. And sure. I really appreciate the time it has taught me a lot. And of course, I'm using the skills I have from that time. And actually, I had kind of always hoped that I would be able to go back at the, to the interface of medicine and molecular biology, because that was my two two kind of sources, if you 
wanted and now I'm back just in a way that I had never anticipated. So of course I draw on that and draw on everything I've ever done until now, but it's, it's a very different field. So here we are at ESMO 2023. From 2015 to 2018, you chaired yes. the patient advocacy working group. That's true. And it was the first time that was held by a quote-unquote non-oncologist. Now, okay, you've got as much knowledge of oncology as most people do at this point, I reckon. What was that experience like? Well, I just fell into it. Um, uh, well, I've always, as I said, I, I started the way I went into advocacy is like that I started explaining science on patient forums and I have taught um, students at a university in anatomy and I financed uh, my driving license by giving math <laughs> lessons and I was much better at teaching math than at driving. Teaching driving, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> it, uh, you know, I did a lot of math teaching to get my driving license. Uh, don't tell my kids. Um, so, um, I've, I think, you know, looking back, I've always been teaching and it's just like, it seemed like a great opportunity opportunity to be approached and it was only in hindsight you know I was quite I just only started the first conference in MPE was 2014 so we're going to have our 10 year anniversary next year so I started in 15 I was totally new I thought it's a great idea and I just fell into it I just like you know I didn't think so much about it and I well it was it was a steep learning curve <laughs> the bureaucracy and <laughs> politics and well the politics are certain <laughs> something you know it was like it wasn't always pleasant to be honest and, sure. uh, and, uh, in many many aspects of it but I think it is like what we achieved I mean you we should forget that for example here we are in Madrid here there was a time when patients here or patient advocates were not allowed in the exhibit area and had problems to even access at conferences overall why was that because patient advocates were considered patients and with that lay public and of course we have quite we have strict laws why there is something that's considered advertising patients are considered the general public and sure. Europe has very strict laws that advertisement of drugs to the to the general public is forbidden and if you consider general public public you can't walk into the medical congress and it was it led to this odd situation that we were reviewing clinical trial protocols but then we're not allowed to see them at the Congress, which was, of course, ridiculous. Well, it was utterly bizarre. And this is how I, the, I started in this type of setting. And at the time, for example, patient advocates couldn't be members of ESMO. And this has totally changed. There is now a special category for patient advocates. We have an own track, and I built the first version of that. Um, we have become part of the what I call part of the wallpaper. What I think is fantastic that we now also have access to the educational resources that ESMO produces, and ESMO produces a lot of resources. How did that happen? How did that change occur? What was the fundamental shift in the paradigm that said, okay, wait a minute, we, we've got to make a hard line here and get the patients in? When did that occur? I think, you know, I think it's probably... Well, it's very hard because I think I arrived after it had started. Sure. But it was like, I think it's a type of co-evolution. If you look at our general discussion in the public, we talk more and more how to how we involve citizens. And patients are, of course, a subgroup of citizens, which is maybe as patient advocates, we're more organized or better organized. Um, but I think there was this realization that we have to involve this, this kind of community, this stakeholder group. We are an independent stakeholder group. I mean, there was a past where clinicians were the voice of the patient. That time is gone. So I think there's just this realization that is an independent stakeholder group and at the same time it also we on the advocacy side started building capacity and I know in my own community it has become a little bit of like uh, there was a spillover effect is that we tried I mean I started treating for us it was about the science it was trials you can't do pretend science so I just I started training people on how to read scientific papers sure. and if you can 
teach and train PhD students, there is no reason that you cannot train a motivated patient advocate who's willing to put in the time. And if it's not, I mean, many of us are scientists and you might not be a medical scientist or a biomedical scientist, but if you have a scientific understanding, you know, like, and you don't try to get a degree in biomedicine, you just try to understand a quite narrow area. So if you put in the work, it is totally feasible to start understanding the science. So this is how I started because, you know, I mean, anyone who goes on the internet sees how much you know fake news and snake oil is out there that threatens actually or that's dangerous for patients sure. so i had started by that anyway and i think what happened then is that um, of course at the at the end at the beginning there's always resistance but people then realized from every side how helpful this was and that patients who were part of these communities didn't fall for newspaper articles but came with a new england paper journal instead and we were becoming part of the scenery here and i tried actually when i started designing the track i was um the the format of the track is still intact so we use for example the lunch so the reason why we use the lunch session in the early sessions is that these were the industry satellite sessions where we were not allowed to either sure and it turned out to be a fantastic slot because it allowed allows everyone, advocates also, to attend the scientific sessions. I never understand why you would want to go to a medical, scientific medical congress and not go not to the science the sessions. sessions yeah. That's crazy. So now we have a format where people, you know, if you're in breast cancer, you go to the breast cancer track. If you're in colon cancer, you listen to these sessions, lung cancer. So we all split for our own cancer, if you like. And then we get back together for the advocacy sessions. And then on top of it, to try to tackle topics that are not just interesting for advocates. I mean, I personally think it's pointless to go to a medical congress where you have 30,000 people and we are maybe 500 and then you talk to each other where we can yeah. ta be talking to each other anyway but you know you want to I, I like this interaction it's a fantastic opportunity to do topics that cut across and I think that's what this should be about and one of the other things I find interesting about ESMO to deal with this compliance issue there's a lot of companies here that have big flashy stands with you yeah. know, coffee and fountains and all this stuff you're not allowed to talk science and drugs and policies on the stand. You're not allowed yeah. to do that. You have to either go into medical affairs department yeah. and it all needs to be written down or you need to walk away from the stand. And they enforce it. They, yes, the they companies do. absolutely enforce Plus it hard. It. Yes. How much were you involved in establishing some of these policies or did this actually start occurring before you were running the patient so, advocacy So, so one of the first things that we were actually tasked with was with as a patient advocacy working group when I took it over, one of the first things, one of my first tasks was actually to define what a patient advocate is. Sure. And I can tell you it was difficult <laughs> because we all kind of, you know, we all were there before. So because of personal experiences, people had different versions of it. So um, the thing is, at some point I was so fed up because it was going all over the place and we knew that this would find influence into the ESMO membership discussions. And I was really passionate about that. I wanted people, I believe learning is so important. So if you don't have access to like knowledge and an opportunity to learn, you miss out on so much. So I really wanted that patient advocates had access to the Congress, to the resources, just that we get out of this fake news and all this kind of, you know, light knowledge and give people the chance to learn. So uh, what I came up with is actually a very basic definition. And uh, this is basically that a patient is someone who's concerned with their own dis dis disease, their own condition. A carer in this situation would be then concerned with one person. So people are in it for themselves and many of us are patients. A patient advocate, I mean, I made the definition, uh, I proposed as a definition that you become an advocate the moment you start caring over the people around you with the same condition. Sure. So the moment you start taking care of a community around you, that's when you become an advocate. You're no longer just a patient, you feel responsibility for people like you, you start helping others like you. And then we added another level, which is like the patient advocacy expert. It's not a very elegant term, I've been looking for a better one, but no one has come <laughs> up so far. Um, it's basically, if you can combine it in areas of expertise. 
I mean, I'm, I'm an MD, PhD, that is my background. That I said, so something in this field, that is my area of expertise, but if you had a legal or a statistic or many other issues and insurance issues, I would not be qualified in that respect. So I think we, you know, often it is, you need the combination, it's the interface of a personal perspective and the, the technical expertise that makes a difference, but for that you need the right one. We have now, and uh, so this is what I started, and I was, I said, okay, it's not perfect, but we run with this unless we have something better that everyone agrees is better. So far, it remains unchallenged, so we've stuck <laughs> with this. I added actually a fourth category within the Melanoma Patient Network Europe, which we call the like the patient experts, because there is a growing group of people who are just patients, so they're in concern with themselves, but who, are, who use their technical expertise to do so. So they don't have the connectivity to the community, so we call them patient experts. But it's basically, if you think about it, it's along three domains. It is about your personal disease experience, which gives you a unique perspective on healthcare, because you are the receiving end of it. There are people who can reflect on the community. So someone, for example, who runs a patient forum, they're really good at giving you a perspective on the diversity of opinions and the variance in opinions, which I personally believe is really important. And then there's the technical expertise. And in this kind of, you know, if you want coordinate system, you kind of can, um, it is actually quite informative. And now for, to, in order to become ESPA member, you have to show that you're a patient advocate. And then you're an ESPA member and you're, you know, like you have access to the congresses and the resources. So in 2014, when you started the Melanoma Patient Network, as you yeah. mentioned, you've been going for almost 10 years, that was the introduction and approval of the first immuno-oncology checkpoint inhibitors, yes. the IOs, yes. which we all know now. But at the time, it was really a revolutionary scientific background. Yes. When Peter had passed away, your husband, we didn't have any effective therapeutic that was actually going to move the bar from an outcome standpoint. Not really. Were you optimistic when you started seeing the data coming out on the IO checkpoints? Well, I knew it was working. Peter was on a phase three with a targeted therapy versus DTIC and was randomized against the targeted therapy and it worked. I mean, melanoma sits on the skin, you can watch it. Yeah. And he died on an ep 10, uh, 10 milligram kick trial because they were, the data was out. I mean, the trials always precede the approval. Of course we sure. knew it was working. You just have to look at the curves. I was at ASCO 2011, the year he was diagnosed. I saw the curves, so we knew it was working. So it wasn't, it wasn't a surprise. But you know, I mean, it was, I mean, hopeful. It's just like, you know, if something like this happens to you, you kind of, if some, someone is pulling the rug, rag out under you and like you, sure. it feels like you have no control and you are the receiving end and healthcare is complex. And if you haven't worked in this kind of setting, you feel like you're a victim, you're a piece in a puzzle and you kind of, you're helpless. So, but at the time, you know, it wasn't about, it wasn't about hopeful. I was angry. I wanted to see change and this is how I started. When the first products came out, when Peter was in the trial, yeah. 25 to 30% efficacy, generally five-year survival. Now we're over 50%. It was 5% at five years. What's happened? How have we improved so much? Well, it's mainly we got not one but two new classes of therapeutics in melanoma. So we got the group of targeted therapies and we got immune checkpoint inhibitors. And things, and because they do work uh, rather well in melanoma, is one of the cancers where they, it's not the, the most uh, effective. I mean, Meckel, Meckel works better and there's one lymphoma that I always have to look up where they're sure. also highly effective. But otherwise, melanoma is kind of, you know, the, the poster child for, for efficacy and checkpoint inhibitors. 
then it is mainly that. And in BRAF inhibitor, you have like two options. You have two classes of therapies, and now we often see that patients have a, a, like alternate between the two classes of therapies, and that is making all the difference. It is really it, w it was so rapid. I mean, when we started 2011-12, like a forum would totally change in one year because people joined and they were dead by the end of the year. Right. And now we have people, now there are people who were at the first conference in 2014 who will be there next year. I mean, that's just unbelievable to have people 10 years of melanoma. I have now a long-term survivors in our community, you know, and that is that feels fantastic. Now, these were approved under, in Europe, under the conditional approval, which is an accelerated yes. pathway and an accelerated approval in the FDA pathway. Both of these pathways have come under a tremendous amount of pressure in Europe, the BMJ has done a series of articles, British Medical yeah. Journal has done a series of articles being very critical of conditional approvals in oncology. We were very involved two years ago in San Diego at the BioConference. There was a lot of regulatory pressure being applied to the accelerated approval in the U.S. That's not abated. This is still happening. People are still extremely critical. What's your opinion of this, given the fact that part of having that accelerated approval is the reason, A, we have these treatments, and B, we now know how they work better and why this curve is up above 50%. I mean, it seems somewhat necessary, and this is a test case almost arguing why we need it. I mean, first, this is a total mixed bag of different arguments sure. that often form like a nasty and not very intellectually consistent argument. So I think if these drugs were uh, at a cost, came at a cost of €2.50, we wouldn't be yeah, having any exactly. of these discussions. So often it's just retrofitting of these are so expensive, we can't afford it, so we try to find someone who's to blame, and the regulators are an easy target in this one. Um, we also had like have a long history of blaming regulators for being too slow. So now the regulators change, now they get blamed for those. For, you know, so, fast, so, you know, yeah. it's just like, you know, so I think that's part of that is too. Then I think there are of course different types of drugs. There are where you have all where you have nothing. Like we had the melanoma DTSC never worked. Everyone knew. I mean that is when Peter was sick. That's when I learned the term nocebo. Nocebo gives you side effect doesn't work. Yeah. What a cynical view of the world. So if you then suddenly have something that is better, and let's face it, from a clinical perspective, you couldn't care less whether it is 49% better or 52.3 or 57% point. But it doesn't matter because you will use it because it's better. So if there is a certain threshold of it is so much better you don't care about the details because the difference is what you met from a clinical perspective that's why there's pressure why we want access to these drugs that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be doing follow-up that doesn't mean you should you know it doesn't relieve anyone from any other responsibility and that I think that our systems are not really set up for it because our, the, our therapies of old were very different so I think it is like there's a learning process in there but from a patient perspective I mean what's the point of letting die people in safety I mean this is an argument I will never understand people say, oh, this drug might not work. Well, if I don't take anything, I'm dead for sure. And so, if we don't you know, get the data, we're not going to know if it works or not. Precisely. Yeah. So I think, you know, it's like, so it very much depends on where you stand, how much you're, whether you have skin in the game or not. Um, I think it's often retrofitting in order to go for a cost control backfitting, which I think is just sloppy. Then they be honest about where the issue is and don't try to find, you know, like a, you know, a pretend um, interference in there. Um, we have been in our community working quite closely with the EMA, with the regulatory authorities. And I, I must learn, I mean, I must, I'm, I must say, I, I very much appreciate um, the thought they put in their decision making and how they question themselves, you know, is something that, I mean, I think everyone knows the FDA, many have never heard about the EMA, even in Europe, like even in the oncology <laughs> community. So if you're not in the field, they're not extremely visible, maybe that has changed now. Um, but I must say, um, 
I, I have really come to appreciate um, the thoughtfulness that goes into the decision. Of course, I'm not happy with everything. I'm never, I never am. <laughs> You're um, always a pleasant person, Zita. <laughs> yeah. What are you saying? Uh, of course. Always shining star. Yes. Of course. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I do appreciate that. So it's like we shouldn't believe that these people are thoughtless or that they just like, can't be bothered. Or so I think that would be a totally wrong wrong impression. And, you know. Well, a couple points on that. We looked at, you know, with a lot of the criticisms about five years ago when all the heat was being turned up on the accelerated approvals in oncology. Yeah, we looked at it and we said, well, how many of these are actually getting withdrawn? And we found that if you looked at a lot of those accelerated approvals, they had a 3 or 4% better attrition rate than a phase 3 in oncology. So in many ways, it was only the strongest drugs and the ones with the strongest endpoints that were getting accelerated approvals or conditional approvals. Yeah. And they were actually performing better than the phase 3 cohort. So it's like, wait a minute, you're getting it three years faster and they're performing 3-4% better on average as far as being withdrawn than the phase 3s. Doesn't this actually say that EMA and FDA are doing a good job? But I, mean, I mean, that's how we saw it. So the first thing is, you don't get accelerated approval for nothing. Yeah, I mean, exactly. you get it because there's a high unmet need and there's a high, is a promising something. So it is a really a selection for a certain scenario. It's not what we do every day. So you should actually expect that these drugs perform better. And, and according to our and data, they, do. they did. And yes. they do. Yes. But that's why I say, I think it's just one of these pretend arguments to push around blame for dealing with long-term sustainability of our healthcare systems, which is a real issue. So yeah. that is a real issue. But it's, I find it's just finding a scapegoat. And, you know, it sometimes hits the regulators, then hits the HDAs, then hits farmers. So I think this that is part of the problem that at the moment we're still pushing around blame, but we're not coming to the real issue and actually finding the solution to it. And 80% of the FDA accelerated approvals get the data packages within four years. So it seems like so much of this is rhetoric and it's not backed by actual I data. I couldn't agree more. So obviously... A lot of the talk this week here at ESMO has been around the dreaded Inflation Reduction Act that's been passed in the United States, where we are seeing, unfortunately, a lot of the oncology packages are small molecules, and there's going to be a lot of economic pressure being placed on these treatments. Are you concerned about the changes to the incentives that this is going to cause and this knock-on effect globally for the sector? Well, yes and no, because sure. I think it's long overdue um, that something has to change, because I think if you look at the trajectory, we know this system is not going to last, and even if you talk to people within pharma, they will admit to that, of course never publicly, but I think we're all waiting for this to hit the wall, and then I'm worried about what happens then. Sure. So we cannot, the, the current system is not sustainable, it's just like we're already in a situation where even the richest countries can't afford or don't want to afford, and in a way, I think I even understand it, we cannot just like increase the proportion of our GDPs, like, you know, uh, over and over and over. If you think, if you look the, here in Europe, we have an increasing aging population. Uh, we have like we have a shrinking working population. At the moment, we also have a war. So and you know, so so in this type of situation, to expect that the healthcare budget will just increase, it's just not it's not realistic. So By 2060, there will be only two workers for every pensioner in Europe. A current demographic trend. So we just simply cannot afford therapies that are at this current price level. That means we have to find another way how to how we develop these drugs. And at the moment, it's just these people who are complaining who are not coming forward with solutions. So at the moment, we are having something that the prices go up and up, and you just have a restriction on access, which leaves the people in the middle hanging, and that's the patients. So I think. Um, what we urgently need are better alternatives, but I don't think anyone knows what the alternative currently looks like. Um, I think that will be a Nobel Prize for economics, so it's definitely not going to be me. You're an advocate of dose-limiting clinical trials. This is something you're very much involved in right now. 
at the Melanoma Patient Network Europe. How are you working to structure dose limiting and dose dose escalation for effectiveness in trials? How are you managing that? You probably mean like dose reduction or dose optimization. I mean, I think everyone in the immune field is concerned about this because, you know, it's like we're coming from, we are targeting a tumor and usually is the more you give, the better it works. So there's like a correlation. Um, Immune therapy works very different because we interfere with the body's immune system and then the, the immune system does the job. So considering that all our immune systems are different, um, I think there's always been this question, how much of this actually do we need? Um, the, the thing I, I worry most about is this one-size-fits-all approach. And then, I mean, just like at the moment, we treat like metastatic melanoma for two years. Where do the two years come from? It seemed like a reasonable period of time. And then we do stage three treatment, treat one year. Where does that come from? Well, it's half of two years. It's also not scientifically based. And then they, we, the, some people like to run those reduction trials and then they go six months. And where does that come from? Well, it's half of one year. But none of that is scientifically based. So, and if one person might need one year and other just needs three weeks, then we're still failing people. We're just shifting around and keeping failing people at different levels. We reduce some costs, but we keep failing people to the same degree. And I don't think A, it's unscientific scientific, and it fails patients. So I think what we have to come or what I would like to see more and we have already the first designs like a response for example response triggered designs so Christian Blanc's group in the Netherlands for example has designed trials so if you like if you have a complete response you can stop treatment if you have stable disease you will continue or you have to have a number of stable scans and then you can consider coming off treatment if you have progressive disease you stay on treatment so rather than trying to fight the one medic dose that fits all which right. we know won't work um, we rather get better at thinking how much do you need so that you get as much as necessary as little as possible because then, of course, you reduce the toxicity. So I think that type of approach is what we're needing. But that, of course, also comes from the technology. And how much of that is also just based on, well, that's what the label says we have to follow the label, and that also has to do with clinical practice and reimbursement because you're going to have to follow the treatment paradigm of the label increasingly. To be honest, if you look what's going on in the wild, so you once know, the things are exactly, you know, this yeah. is like, I mean, clinicians will adjust the dose. And if they say that someone has toxicity, they will just postpone the next infusion for sure. a few weeks. So, I mean, clinicians tailor to patients. But the problem is if we don't learn from it and, you know, we can't sustain it. So it becomes always like, a, you know, an experiment N of one that we end up, I mean, in a way, this is how we should be doing medicine. We should tailor our approaches to the single person. But it would help if we had like a more systematic, at least kept the data of what we sure. do and if you see many therapies it's known that people don't go to the full dose because of toxicity so you know so I think this tailoring that is is actually we've, I've been in some discussions here now this ESMO is like about um, how we optimize treatments and how we kind of get faster at getting it right but we will never have it I mean you have a study you approve a drug and then this tailoring takes time and experience so the more systematically we learn from it the faster we will get to you know the best possible treatment and I think that's true for all therapies not just melanoma but the problem is as you know better than anyone you look at 200 patients in a clinical pathway even with the same clinical profile you had 200 different pathways yes. no two patients respond exactly the same that's even more that's what the reason exactly why we need these principles like you know if you agree on a principle then you don't have to have the same pathway you trigger it like and I think this is actually what is happening I mean sure. people aren't stupid it's like people are paying attention maybe at the beginning we were all uncertain and we would treat those two years just to be sure but now we know 
that if you have if you have a complete response, it is safe to go off. And even if you rechallenge afterwards, you kind of get a response that is very close to what you would have gotten had you like you know had you gotten it the first time around. That's the, the work by Caroline Robert. You are safe in the knowledge because there has there there are publications. There is evidence you can base your decisions on. If you're the first, do you dare to take your patient off? But if it has been done, it has been reported, yeah, sure. then you feel reassured, and that's a very different game all of a sudden. You're also involved in a project out of the Netherlands called the DRUP Consortium. Yes. yes. What exactly is the DRUP Consortium? So first, I'm not directly involved in the DRUP Consortium, but in a um, collaboration of DRUP-like clinical trials. Okay. So the DRUP trial is a study that started in the Netherlands uh, about repurposing of existing drugs, um, a different way of expressing off-label use um, for some certainly political reason. It is a relatively pragmatic design. It is for first for all comers, all cancer patients who have exhausted all lines of available therapy. Um, they get access to molecular testing. Should a targeted therapy be available that matched their, their mutation, uh, they would get access to that therapy. Um, then that data would be captured. And the design of it is a two-stage Simon design. So you have like, I think, response in eight patients. If you have one who's positive, you escalate and then there's a large cohort in the end. The data gets collected and then gets submitted to the National Health Technology Assessment Body for evaluation. I think already that principle, that alone, that setup alone is fascinating because it has is underpinned by a risk sharing agreement between sure. the manufacturer and the the national payer. So the the company will provide product for for the first 16 weeks for all patients for free. Should the patients respond, it's have a response at 16 week. Uh, so no response, the patient is taken off treatment. Um, at response, the healthcare system starts paying, and of course because it's an approved drug, uh, that is possible. Sure. Um, however, afterwards, because while the data is collected, this gets submitted for full evaluation and that already has led to the reimbursement of, uh, of a PD-1 inhibitor in a certain setting in the Netherlands. So what is interesting is that first you have a risk sharing agreement between the healthcare system and, and, and the, the manufacturer and the healthcare system um, without an HDA approval and then you collect and then you have the HDA approval. So basically we have made access and evaluation, we have reverted the order. Normally we generate evidence, right. we evaluate, we implement. Here we implement, we generate the evidence, we evaluate, and then turn this around. And I think that's the fascinating bit in there. And it's possible because the drugs are already, these are approved, they have a well-known safety profile. I mean, yes. you, you, have, you have an idea what you're dealing with, so you're Absolutely. not going in blind. So it's, it's a way to try and... You know, basically try new novel combinations, etc., or new approaches to so treatment. This, this, so at the moment, this is basically an expansion of indications. So sure. it's label expansion. It's, it's the, at, this, at this stage. And what then happened is, I, I always make jokes about it, and people don't think it's so terribly funny, but at least everyone <laughs> um, understands. I would say it's a medical TikTok. Sure. So, you know, they posted, they published the protocol, and then people found it and thought it was so inspiring that they started using it and started sharing it and started working on it themselves. So it became really like a movement, and other countries started copying, or well not copying, they use it as inspiration and then created their own version. That's why they, we call them now drop-like clinical trials. Because while they were very, it, they integrate into the local system, people start connecting centers that every patient in a country has access, um, but they still kept the basic design, the two-stage assignment design, and they kept a basic, like a handful of endpoints. Every trial kept because they made sense. But now Denmark has such a trial, Norway has such a trial, Sweden has such a trial, Finland has one, Portugal has one, France has one, the UK has one, Ireland is building one, and we have an entire group of countries also in Eastern Europe that are preparing to build one. And 
and we have like now we have two European projects so and I'm involved in both of these projects over my uh, so over my work and these are like in your copious spare time I'm sure I now work 50% <laughs> of my time at the Stockholm um, Institute uh, Stockholm School of Economics Institute for Research for a Swedish innovation ecosystem financed by our innovation uh, agency it's called Vision Zero Cancer so Norvihun Cancer and uh, as linked to this initiative we have a test bed which is about precision medicine implementation and the Swedish drop like trial is part of this initiative of precision medicine implementation so we were one of the gang if you like sure. one of one of those who picked up the TikTok and now we go together with these different DLCTs and uh, successfully applied for two European projects last year so one of them is called PCM for you which is trying to um, harmonize the molecular testing across these countries and primaries as the second one is to build joint cohorts because at the moment everything is organized, governed, financed individually on national level. Now we're trying to add another label, a level where we can start aggregating data and start working together, obviously also to recruit faster these cohorts. And I think it's a fascinating process because there is no co central control, there is no spider in the network. It's a self-organizing system because people see the benefit of working together. And so I think I've never seen anything like this. So it's a clinic, it's like people set up platform trials in their countries and by keeping like the underlying bulk plan, they now can go back together and add an additional layer that benefits everyone. And if there's something European about it, it would be this. So I think it's a fascinating initiative. And I like it particular that we have affiliates in both projects who come from other countries who are not quite, who haven't set up this trial yet. And I'm personally working on, a, uh, we so, uh, intend to submit uh, an application to uh, the widening program of the European Commission that helps countries with less research act um, activity to step up and uh, to build excellence um, hubs in precision medicine. So this is something where I'm currently spending a lot of my time. I mean, there's, uh, the patients for me personally and MPNE, we've been trying to help patients from Eastern Europe in particular, and it was, was heartbreaking that access to drugs was such a problem. First, advanced, advanced, I would call them advanced, advanced patients who have been through all lines of therapies and nothing is left, so you need experimental medicine. And that was particular hard or impossible in Eastern Europe. And this is now an, a possibility to make a difference in these regions. So I'm actually rather grateful for the opportunity. And it solves a lot of the problems you've had around data protocol sharing, and some of the data problems that you have about implementation. Precisely. You're sort of getting around that through group knowledge and yes. the bandwidth alone that you have behind it will solve a lot of these issues that we've been trying to uh, encumber on the front end, you're sort of doing on the back end, which is fascinating. But you know, I think when I was on the, I was on the EU Cancer Mission Board and I worked on the recommendation for personalized medicine, so I started mapping, mapping the ecosystem and it was COVID, so everyone was at home, sure. so it was a fantastic opportunity, <laughs> at least something positive in that time. You could get hold of a lot of people who were all stuck at home, so people were very generous with their knowledge and their time, so they gave me a real deep insight into their view of where the issues in precision medicine come from, and I've just reviewed my, my material and my drawings from, I always draw to think, um, uh, from that time, and I thought, we're never going to solve it, because there are so mutually dependencies, and there's, it's so complex, and you don't shift a system just by this, because there's so many interdependencies, you can't, a, a system is, but it doesn't move unless there's a reason to move so. And it wasn't unless I met the drip-like trials that I realized that it needs something concrete, something that everyone agrees is important, and this is access for people who have no other option. Sure. And everyone can kind of identify with that. We all have, any one of us has some kind of connection to cancer. So this is everyone agrees that there's an important purpose. And it allows actually a system to shift around a shared purpose, because everyone links back to this purpose, and that allows you to align any type of stakeholder around it and find, you know, it's a concrete, it's, it's very small, it's pragmatic, it will not 
solve everything, but it is concrete enough to allow us to position ourselves versus this object. And once that is in place, you can build back and can become sure. more sophisticated. So that's why I'm very hopeful. I hadn't understood, you know, just like I've spent quite some time now in innovation theories and system change just to understand how do complex adaptive systems evolve? How do you have to think about change in complex adaptive systems? So once you start thinking a little bit more at the system perspective, you realize, you know, where I kind of had gaps in my thinking before. I'm hopeful. I'm really hopeful that this will change something for Europe. Systems respond to incentives. They do. And this creates a lot of incentives for improvement, and it also creates a platform for it. Three to five years from now, given the combination we're looking at of pressures, but also experimentation, it's a mixed bag. Where do you think we are three to five years from now? Well, I feel right now that things are changing very rapidly uh, wherever we are in health. So probably also driven by COVID, you know, that we sure. have seen that we are able to do things that we didn't think were possible before. So I think in speed and alignment and collaboration, how we think about each other, how we work together um, in these projects. Um, I have also, I mean, the first we wrote the first application back last year. So the project started in January this year and it is, so it started in January this year. Now we are October and we have already over fulfilled things that we thought we wouldn't be able by the end of the project. So there is a traction and energy and a speed that is very hard to kind of anticipate. So I'm a bit careful with five years is a long time right sure. now. So um, I do think something is going to happen because we cannot finance these drugs and countries are increasingly unwilling to do so. So I think we need a different way of how we're thinking about drug development. But I'm always thinking, you know, there are so many smart people in drug development. If this classic model of financing, how we run it right now, venture capital, and we try, you know, uh, that if this fails or increasingly fails, they're not going to go home and make toothpaste and lipstick. I just don't buy it. So I believe we will find another model. I think it's going to be extremely painful in between, unfortunately. And my worry is that the patients are the ones who are going to be paying the price, as always. On that note, <laughs> <laughs> Bettina, it's always lovely to see you and it's been too long. Thank you so much. And thanks for Likewise. your time. Likewise. Pleasure. The executive producer of the Vital Health Podcast is Dwayne Schultes. Our editor is Mark Brodeen. Our project manager is Gwen O'Laughlin. The Vital Health Podcast is a production of Vital Transformation, LLC, copyright 2023.